Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast, and this is our 100th episode, so it's a bit of a special one today, and we are interviewing Dr. Bryce Wakefield. Bryce is the National Executive Director of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and a visiting fellow at Australian National University. He has lived and worked and researched in the United States, Japan, Europe and New Zealand. He is trained as a political scientist with particular expertise in international relations and international security. And he's joining us on the podcast today to talk a little bit about the chaos that's going on globally over the last 12 to 24 months and what we might particularly expect to see happening in 2024. Bryce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I didn't know it was your 100th uh, podcast. I'm quite honoured to be here. That's all right. Yes, it's a, uh, a bit of a special milestone for us. Yeah, great. Congratulations. So for those people listening, perhaps you can tell us by, uh, start off by telling us a little bit about what the Australian Institute of International Affairs does. Okay, so let me tell you what it is first. We're, um, we were founded in 1933, but we were founded by separate member organisations that date themselves back to the 1920s. So I guess you could call us Australia's first think tank on foreign affairs, but we're also a membership organisation that's based in the communities of Australia. So uh, actually anybody can be a member of the AIIA and we're based all around the country in every state and territory. Um, we run more than 160 events per year in our branches in the eight state and territory capitals in Australia. Uh, my office, though, the national office, uh, coordinates most of the, the the research activities of the Institute. We run the Australian Journal of International Affairs. That's the nation's premium journal in the field, academic journal. Um, we publish about five or 600 shorter online analysis articles per year, about 10 per week. Um, and we also do track two dialogues, that is meetings with experts from different countries on foreign policy. We do international expert exchange on foreign policy, and we run a major conference. We like to think it's the major conference on Australian foreign policy every year. Um, and an increasing part of our business is talking to boardrooms about foreign policy, because really since Ukraine, businesses are waking up to the fact that international political instability is a factor that they um, have to take into account in their risk calculations. Yeah, well, that's probably a pretty good segue into what we're actually discussing today, because given that uh, a significant portion of our listeners are senior security advisors in large corporates and, and Fortune 500 organisations or government security advisors to uh, government agencies or you know owners of security companies, and the fact that, as you allude to, you know, what goes on overseas has a significant impact on Australia and Australian foreign policy and Australian corporate relations and all sorts of things. I wanted to touch on um, an article I had recently seen in Bloomberg where they spoke about the fact that there are, and you might be able to correct my stats here if I'm wrong, but according to this particular article, it stated that there are over 140 conflicts occurring across the globe at the moment, which includes both the war in Ukraine and the conflict in Gaza. This is allegedly the highest number of conflicts occurring around the globe since the beginning of World War One, uh, And we're also seeing China rattling its sabre at, the, at Taiwan and making 
rumours and machinations in the South China Sea. We have the potential for Donald Trump to possibly return to the US presidency in 2024, as unfathomable as that may be, it could happen. Um, And I guess the question is, what does all of this instability mean for Australia? Oh yeah, gosh, there's there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said, and there are, there are really two parts. Um, that there's one thing I want to focus on, which is the survey that you mentioned. That I think um, the the survey in the Bloomberg article was the uh, uh, the International Institute of Strategic Studies survey. Um, they're quite a useful um, organisation. They put out um, quite a lot of um, statistical information and have interactive maps and whatnot, so you can see quite clearly what they're talking about. Um, There are other similar surveys that come to the same conclusion, um, surveys done by Scandinavian countries and whatnot. Um, But if you drill down into the data, you notice something about those conflicts. Um, It's certainly true that the data shows there are around 180 odd um, conflicts around the world, but it's important to measure that the data measures all sorts of conflicts. So it's conflicts between states, conflicts between state governments, groups within states, one-sided violence where an actor is attacking civilians who aren't fighting back, etc. And particularly in the Scandinavian surveys I've just mentioned, what we notice in the data is that the largest growth is in non-state conflicts. That is where armed groups are fighting each other within states, but without really government involvement. Now, these are conflicts often over resources within a given country. They're very relevant when it comes to human suffering. Um, One of them, for example, just off the top of my head, um, various conflicts in Ethiopia add up to um, perhaps some of the the bloodiest fighting um, within a country uh, in the 21st century. Um, But they're not the sort of conflicts that we talk about that you've just addressed, for example, Um, that we see on the news, right? Um, The sort of conflicts that we think of when we think of of war is um, interstate war, like the the conflict in Ukraine. Um, And uh, they tend to be emphasized in media because um, not only are they they kind of uh, transgressions against the international rules-based order, if you like, but they have um, the potential to be quite destabilizing to the international system. They threaten the um, interests of major powers and often they're conducted by major powers. Now, in terms of interstate conflicts in those surveys, you only find that there are two or three in uh, 2023. Um, uh, So, for example, there's obviously the... uh, the the interstate conflict between Russia and Ukraine. There's another conflict between um, Azerbaijan and Armenia, Um, uh, but they are by far the minority um, within within those surveys. Yep. So um, let's turn then to the question of of Ukraine and Russia and and also uh, Taiwan and and, uh, and and China and what all this means um, for global security in 2024. So I think there are um, there are three things that we really got to keep an eye on in uh, 2024. Three um, variables that we can actually predict. One is an election in Taiwan. 
Um, another is an election in uh, the United States. Uh, that's obviously the presidential election and the threat of Trump coming back. And um, the third is elections um, to take place uh, in the uh, European Parliament. It's very hard to predict um, what's going to happen on the world stage um, in the year ahead. One thing we can predict, of course, is elections. And you've already alluded to um, the presidential election in 2024. That's something we have to keep an eye on. Um, Trump, uh, the, the the possible return of Trump, and, and it's looking likely that he, um, he will certainly be a factor, at least, um, in the presidential election. Um, that's that's certainly um, something that's potentially destabilizing. Um, but I'll have to say this, and I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I, I, in no way do I think the election of Donald Trump is um, a positive thing if it happens. Um, uh, it would certainly have a long-term effect on the credibility of the United States as an international actor in the world, I think. Yeah. But what I have to say about um, Trump is that he, um, he, he, he's not necessarily going to be bad news for everybody in, um, in the world. Um, if you look at uh, the way he behaved towards Europe, um, obviously um, the Europeans uh, would be very worried at the moment because there's, there's a chance that he might try and strike a deal on Ukraine. Um, and the Europeans obviously do not want this. They do not want to see um, a world in which um, uh, Vladimir Putin can invade um, a nearby country and then negotiate his way out of that. But if you look at the 2016 Trump president, presidency, actually there were a number of countries that, that did fairly well out of it. Um, so, for example, um, Japan, um, the United States uh, accepted Japan's um, strategy wholesale, the Indo-Pacific strategy, as its own strategy, took that strategy on board. So um, there was some very skillful diplomacy on the part of then Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to actually bring, uh, bring um, Trump to Japan's point of view, especially when it came to uh, China. Um, Australia didn't feel, uh, fare so badly um, under the last Trump administration either, right? And one thing that a lot of the, the countries that actually did do fairly well under the Trump administration um, found was that they could, um, they if, if they could flatter him, they could often get their way. And that relied on um, those countries having uh, very good leader-to-leader -leader personal relationships with Donald Trump. Now, the problem with Europe, of course, and I don't want to, I don't want to invoke the old Kissingerian adage, but the problem with Europe is that there's, it's, it's very hard to identify one particular leader who speaks for Europe. Um, and therefore, Europe is going to have a hard time under a Trump administration because um, it's going to have a hard time figuring out how to deal with him in a person-to-person -person relationship type of way. Um, the other thing that you have to think about when you think about the Trump administration is to think about who um, who within the administration that you is it that you're dealing with. Um, 
it, it may well be that Trump or a Trump-like like figure um, is going to um, take the United States in directions that are that we're unprepared for. Um, but often you'll find that the institutions and the agencies that surround Trump um, and also his advisors do actually have a better understanding of uh, security issues than he does. Um, so the problem there, though, is that Trump actually thinks he's something of a genius when it comes to uh, trade issues. So um, if he's um, in the presidential hot seat, then it may be him calling the shots on trade. Uh, so those those people who uh, work on trade will have a harder time, perhaps, than those who work on security and trying to figure out what the Trump administration is thinking. Yeah. I, I guess in terms of the global outlook, though, the part of the question I was concerned with with regard to Trump was that he tends to have a somewhat isolationist point of view of the world and wants to withdraw from a lot of what's going on uh, globally and focus largely on America and America's interests. And in the kind of environment that we've got at the moment where there is reportedly so much global instability, I think it would be hard to deny that in, you know, in the wake of World War II, America to some degree largely took on, either formally or informally, the role of the global police force, especially by way of its navy and making sure that, you know, free trade lanes remained open, that the world sort of behaved to a certain standard, that bullies didn't get out of control and all the rest of it. And if America withdraws and doesn't play that role to the extent that it has in the past, which it's increasingly been decreasing that role over the last decade or so, would would a total isolationist sort of point of view exacerbate and create greater opportunity for further global unrest oh absolutely it would um but i but again i don't my own view is that i don't think it's going in that direction right okay um and 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 if you look at if you look at um who trump surrounds himself elbridge colby um uh, others others like that um even steve bannon um as capricious as he was they do have a very uh, firm um, understanding in their ideology that the major threat to the United States is coming from China. Okay. Um, and I don't think that um, Trump would, would walk that back. Yeah. Right. Certainly, he'll um, engage in a lot of the rhetoric that he did in, in the in his 2016 to 2020 years, uh, where he talked about allies lifting their game in um, in East Asia. Um, but they're doing that anyway. I mean, Japan has announced um, greater defense spending. The Philippines is working um, in a more integrated fashion with the United States. Um, Taiwan, although it goes back and forwards on this, has increased its defense spending under Taiwan. Um, even Australia, we have Australia, um, we have Australia um, working together with the United States on AUKUS. And, and paying for it, which is a which is an important important part in the sort of Trump rhetoric. So, um, I I I'm perhaps more confident that we won't see um, isolationism on the part of the United States in East Asia. Okay. In the transatlantic relationship, that might be a different story. Okay. 
So you you alluded to a lot of the stuff that's going on in Taiwan there and, you know, the fact that there is an election in 2024, which brings us round, I guess, to the subject of China more roundly and its, you know, I suppose desires to take over Taiwan or have a go at Taiwan and what that might mean as far as global conflict is concerned. Um, and I guess there's a couple of factors there that, that need to be questioned. Number one, would they actually do it? given that they do appear, by all outwards extent, um, to be vulnerable to a blockade in the South China Sea, a naval blockade, which would cut off maybe up to somewhere in the in the, the area of 80% of their agricultural and energy imports, which would then lead to significant famine and halts in production and all sorts of things in China that would leave them in a negative position. So is it realistic to believe that China would actually make a play for Taiwan? Yeah, this is this is interesting. Um, I don't think so. Um, and part of my conviction on that has been swayed by the fact that I've just spent a week in Taiwan talking to Taiwanese experts, um, who, by the way, I think we need to be talking to more often because they've got their ear uh, much closer to the ground on China than probably any other actor. Um, and um, about 75% of them um said no it's not likely that there there will be some sort of invasion um i think we often think um in term in very black and white terms of you know will there be an invasion or won't there whereas um uh the the sort of standard operating procedure in china is to keep sort of putting pressure on taiwan and and um going ever further into the gray zone um uh, and making sure that Taiwan continues to feel under pressure. But in terms of an all-out invasion, I, I think it's unlikely. What we will see um, in 2024 is the election. Um, and what we're likely to see after the election, um, some sometime after the election, it takes quite a while for the president to be inaugurated, but we will see, um, uh, we will see tensions rise either way. And they'll rise because um, Beijing will either not be pleased with the with the election of um, a DPP government. That's the current party in power, um, and it's the one that generally leans towards Taiwanese sovereignty. Um, but we'll also see China try and ramp up tension on a KMT government to try and accept what they call the 1992 consensus. Now. This was a kind of um, uh, a consensus that was reached under previous KMT governments between Maing Zhou and, uh, and and the CCP, um, and it was kind of a fudge back then. No one in Taiwan could ever really tell you what it meant. The CCP would always say that it meant that Taiwan accepted that there was only one China. Um, uh, since then. The DPP has been in power and they've been silent on the 1992 consensus. Um, and the Chinese have been able to push that line ever further that that the 1992 consensus means unambiguously that Taiwan recognizes that um, there is no separate Taiwan. It is a, there is only China of which Taiwan is a part. Um, and they will be pushing the KMT to again acknowledge um, uh that fact um so uh they will be ramping up um 
you know, military tensions and provo provocation either way, I think, um, either as a punishment for the DPP or to put the KMT under more and more pressure for it to come around to their uh, their way of thinking on 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 what China looks like. Um, having said that, for all the various re reasons that you've already outlined, um, I don't think we're likely to see um, uh, a situation that re results in all-out conflict, um, not least because I think Taiwan is deterred by the United States and its allies in the region, and increasingly so. Sorry, China is deterred by the United States and its allies in the region, and increasingly so. Sure. So then that brings us around to, I guess, what's going on in Gaza at the moment with the conflict between uh, Hezbollah, oh, sorry, uh, Hamas and uh, Israel. And there's obviously been a lot of discussion recently about that conflict and its potential to spill over into uh, a wider regional conflict if Hezbollah and other groups get drawn into it, which might then in turn bring in Iran and potentially blow out for that to be a a much bigger conflict than it is right now. How do you see that playing out in 2024 insofar as it is possible to see what might happen? Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's very murky. I would, um, I would, however, bet against it becoming a, um, a regional conflict just because I think a lot of the actors, um, know the high stakes that are at play here. Um, and in fact, there are a lot of actors um, who have been, a, a lot of um, regional actors who were um, at one stage uh, quite um, antagonistic towards um, Israel, who have been developing their relations with um, Israel in recent years. Um, of course, now um, the United Arab Emirates, for one, has a formal relationship with Israel. Um, Saudi Arabia were, were, were certainly leaning that way. And um, that uh, may actually well have been a factor in the original um, attack on Israel by Hamas. Um, some people think that there were elements in Qatar, which of course does not want to see uh, Saudi Arabia um, uh, having a good relationship with, with Israel because Saudi Arabia is Qatar's uh, uh, foe, if you like, within the region, a, a rival in the region. Um, uh, and you know elements um, uh, elements there might have um, might have encouraged Hamas to to make the original attack. That's all speculation, of course. Um, but I think that um, that really a lot of actors, including Hezbollah, um, and including um, many of the Arab states around Israel, are looking at this and and being very very cautious about what their position will be. Um, so my um, my my prediction is that it will be contained. Yeah. There are there are elements like the Houthis, for example, that are actually firing missiles uh, across the region, um, but they're being countered by um, by 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 the United States and its and, and its allies in the region as well. Okay, so. With that sort of all taken care of, uh, back to the original opening point that you made about, you know, international affairs having some impact here on Australia and, you know, the, the sorts of things that boardrooms need to be aware of, given that some of these conflicts don't look like they're going to be ending in any great hurry, and I expect we may see 
more next year, if not, you know, if not the same. What sorts of things, in your view, do you think organisations or the security managers within large organisations need to be aware of and need to be factoring into their planning and talking to their boards about? Yeah, so um, if it's in Australia and they're focused on um, uh, uh, the the technology dividends, I guess, from or potential technology uh, benefits of um, the AUKUS deal, then they have to be... Uh, they have to be quite sensitive to the Trump administration. Um, AUKUS, um, for all that I've said that Trump uh, uh, won't be too provocative in our region, um, AUKUS is one area that he may single out as um, as a um, political uh, uh, kind of um, a, a place to attack, basically. Um, uh, you know, um, there are there are factors within AUKUS that that would make um, uh, that would make it um, somewhat controversial in 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 2024 and onwards for an American audience. Um, uh, not least that the United States is providing um, uh, Australia with something like a tenth of the U.S. Sub submarine fleet. Yeah. Um, uh, at a time when the U.S. needs and its allies, I guess, needs those submarines um, in order to counter China, um, I'm not saying that that um, it necessarily will be the case that um, uh, that he would target those, but it's it's something that they certainly have to look out for. Um, in terms of uh, Ukraine, Russia, we want to see um we do want to actually see europe taking more of the leadership burden on this um no matter who's in the white house uh in 2024 um i think um i think i think europeans have sort of got the message that they that they need to take a uh if not tougher stance um they need to get more involved financially in um, the war on ukraine so uh, I think you, you can expect to see uh, Europe ramp up its, um, its aid to Ukraine in advance of the American election in November. Do you think that will happen? Because it seems like the appetite for supporting Ukraine in its war against Russia seems to be waning at the moment and there's a greater and greater call for um, perhaps some sort of um, compromise to be made between the two in the hopes of bringing the the conflict to a conclusion. Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, you certainly do see that in um, in US quarters. Um, you you see it less in Europe, I think. Okay. Um, and the chatter that I'm hearing around the diplomatic circuit is uh, that you know the my European friends, while they're concerned that you know Putin may now be winning. Um, they're also determined that he shouldn't win. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's 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 up to Europe to rise to the challenge. Um, what I would think is, if they are less certain that the United States will be there by the end of um, 2024, uh, they might actually have to come up with some robust plans of their own. Certainly, the political indicators are there. I mean, they've just um, they've just uh, allowed um uh ukraine into the process of discussion on eu membership 
um, uh, whether or not they will follow that with with real material support for Ukraine is a different story, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. And then anything that we need to be aware of with regard to what's happening in Israel at the moment that we should be taking into account in planning or uh, preparing from a security point of view? Or, I mean, I guess it's it's challenging because yeah, if someone was operating a minerals or exploration or mining re- company in any of these regions, there are some very clear things to look at. But sometimes the the things we need to be thinking about aren't always so obvious. Yeah, look, um, I'm I I can't claim to be um, an expert on Israel. Um, uh, I, my my inkling is that we're 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 just going to um, we're going to we're going to see a conflict that's going to fizzle out at some stage in in 2024. It can't go on forever, but um, I don't think that calls for restraint um, that are coming now from Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and and well, actually, um, the vast majority of of nations in the world. Um, uh, are actually going to penetrate. I think um, you're going to see Israel um, doing what it does until it feels that it has a modicum of, of safety and Hamas has been reduced um, so that it has, is as little of a threat as it can be. Um, we're not going to see Israel enter into some kind of ceasefire and talks with Hamas. It's, it's just preposterous to think that that would ever happen. Yeah. And I guess if I was offering any advice to, you know, security managers within organisations here about any of these sorts of things, it would be, you know, advise the board not to publicly take sides on any of this, regardless of what the public sentiment or your feelings might be, because you have no idea how that might play out in the public sphere. Yeah, and I think that's a sensible position to take in general, right? I mean, um, uh at the risk of, of angering some of your more uh, politically in, inclined viewers, um, I don't think it's particularly sensible to start waving flags when these conflicts occur um, on either side, um, because you know um, the the sort of rhetoric around um, uh, how how we have to either stand up for the rights of the Palestinian people or allow Israel to defend itself. Um, to an extent, uh, and certainly online, kind of creates a kind of carte blanche mentality where Israel can do anything it wants, or um, or the the, Palestine, the poor Palestinians are just not associated with Hamas at all. And um, this this sort of rhetoric is is uh, is just not helpful when it comes to analysis. I have to say. Right. Well, look. Dr. Wakefield, thank you very much for your time. If people want to find out more about the uh, the Australian Institute of International Affairs or yourself or the work that you do, where can they go? Yep, they can go to internationalaffairs.org. That's O-R-G dot A-U. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. It's been enlightening and hopefully get to speak to you again at some stage in the future. Great, great to be here and great to be here. Congratulations again on your 100th podcast. It's really great to have been part of it. Thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the Asia Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, 
the Google Play Store and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.